So welcome back to the Story of Software podcast. Today we're joined by Niall Toomey, who's the CTO at Fenergo, and we're going to learn how to scale a fintech company. Niall is not only the CTO, but also the co-founder of Fenergo, which is one of Ireland's tech unicorns. And he's going to share some context about his own story and also how Venergo gained the success it has since 2008. So, Niall, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Really good. Thanks, Padraig. Delighted to be here. Fantastic. So to kick off, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what led you to a career in technology? Yeah, so, I mean, first, I'm married to Siobhan with three children, live in Cork. Um, and I guess what led myself to current technology was actually quite young, like really young. My dad bought me a computer and uh, he kind of gave me a big programming book. I must have been six or seven. He goes, you want to learn that? It's the future. And I'm not sure where he got that epiphany from. He's a vet, so I've, I've no idea whatsoever. But he was he was right in fairness to him. And I started from young age programming games. I remember programming a lot of games when I was a kid. And then when I was a teenager, I was programming a lot of um, business applications for him. He was doing it on the cheap. He wanted a billing, invoicing, or whatever, <laughs> whatever way to stop him paying software licenses, I guess. Uh, and I kind of knew, I knew at that stage, I really like maths and I really like business as well. But I knew at that stage. I wanted to combine the two, so software engineering and business together. Um, ended up doing business information systems in UCC. Kind of had a decent programming background before I'd come in there, so I kind of wanted to combine the two and kind of really something that is not just programming, but also running a business with with software. That's kind of that's kind of where my interest came from. Fantastic, and I guess you know, in life and in business, it takes challenges and obstacles to overcome to get better at anything or to really become competent. Would you be able to speak about some of the challenges you faced early in your career? Um, yeah, I mean, look, I came out of college in 2002, just after the kind of dot-com bust, bubble burst. And I had a job offer in the year beforehand, internship, and that was gone, like literally the day after September 11th. It was, it was in the US, it was a mutual fund, like that was gone, that was completely gone. And leaving college in 2002, it was not easy to get a job. I mean, going from people really chasing you to give you job offers just 12 months before and you weren't finished college to your like got best luck getting a job and it, there's been a few boom and bust kind of cycles in technology that was initially was a challenge lucky enough persevered got a job working uh working actually in the states and doing a trading software so was happy with that really good the thing with that job was interesting was i was working in a cost center i wasn't really working in a revenue driving center at the time um and i will say that was kind of a challenge for me is that i didn't enjoy that like i didn't enjoy just creating something for the sake of doing something so i kind of moved on then to saying well actually i want to be doing technology but i want to be in a revenue driving i want to be like this is the business of the company rather and this is kind of a cost center support I just didn't enjoy that so i, I would have moved then to london working for accenture as a technology consultant in financial services and i really enjoyed that um, i kind of found that was my motivating factor then I guess uh, the financial services for Ash, you know, credit crunch, et cetera, that came around 2008, 2009. I actually moved back to Ireland then. And that was interesting because that was a very challenging time. Again, similar enough when I left college, you weren't getting a job for love, no money. <laughs> and it's actually that time we started the company. You know, it was a crisis, but actually, you know, it was a good time in the sense that, you know, we all worked in banking. There's a huge opportunity for efficiency. There's a huge opportunity for technology that really wasn't been taken advantage of. And lack of options. We're also really hungry at the time to make it work and start our own company because you know there wasn't a huge amount else going on in the, in the sector at that stage. Uh, so yeah, that that was interesting. And I guess starting the company would be a challenge. You know, it's a startup. You know, will it be around in twelve months? Will you starting a family? 
you know, that, that uncertainty doesn't help. Uh, it's a small company. There's only a few of us within multiple roles. That's certainly a challenge. We wear many hats and figure stuff out we've never done before. Brilliance is exhilarating. You know, adrenaline's pumped through your veins all the time. You're trying to do so much at the same time. Um, but, you know, definitely now that we have scaled, now you have people in roles and people to do more work for you. You realize that's certainly a challenge. And when you go back to those early days or even the kind of the launch days, like, did the idea to start a business come about from like four friends sitting around a table in a pub having a pint and talking about the future? Or what was the kind of genesis for the whole thing? Yeah, um, just for context for, for the listeners. Uh, so it's in financial services. We do compliance software. Um, I'm not sure anybody's in a pub thinking they want to boast. <laughs> they want to do compliance software. It's not really a pub talk, to be honest. So where I came about is um, I was back in Ireland. Um, we all worked in financial services. We knew we wanted to do a product in financial services, and there was tons of ideas and options. At the time, actually, we had worked in our past experience in a lot of lending. We knew it was incredibly inefficient. We wanted to do end-to-end process. So that was our idea. We took it to the market, and the market at the time, this is 2008, 2009, said, that's a great idea. Two years ago, there is no credit being given out here, guys. <laughs> Our problem now is the amount of regulation because of the misuse of finances, the mis-selling, you know, the, the, the regulations really hating us as in financial institutions were telling us. They told us, they told us what the problem was. They really kind of on a whiteboard sketched out, this is the solution now that you guys need to think about because there's nobody else out here doing it. So that's kind of where, genuinely is where it came about was we had an idea, but we pivoted really fast based on customers kind of telling us it's not really, that's not where the problem is at the moment, guys. If you're selling into financial services, that's often well-established, large, complex organizations. How did you win those early customers when you're kind of small, don't have a track record? You know, how do you make that happen? Initially, you kind of got pivoted the idea and got the right idea. And then the question is, how do you actually sell it? So kind of went to a lot of customers in Ireland, potential customers. And they're like, yeah, I like the idea, but I have no money. I have no money to pay for this at the time. Kind of went to some other more established customers like your point. They're like, love the idea, love the vision, love you guys, but you don't have the capital in your balance sheets for us to buy a software off you. Like, can't sue you if this goes wrong. There's nothing to collect. You're too small. You don't have any track record. What we found was people are willing to be early adopters. Um, we found the ones that realized because there wasn't established competitors in the space, nobody else is really doing it, that they knew they had to go with somebody who was up and coming before somebody became established and it was just in that part so you had to find who was going to be the early adopters uh, they paid us perpetual license like once off up front to give us funding they introduced us to other clients in their cluster you know it really was finding that kind of visionary client who was willing to be an early adopter and take a chance you know that we gave back to them is we built what they needed you know so they had a lot more control they felt by going with us so it does go both ways was that early adopter client based in the u.s yeah, so the first kind of real kind of cluster, uh, cohort would have been in the US and then kind of in Canada. So that North American piece was really our first real foray to getting a product in this space and make it work properly. We had a similar experience in terms of we were pivoting our business to become a software consultancy. And our first client was, was an American company based in Seattle, Washington. And they could see that we could probably deliver what they needed, but we didn't have any track record, but they were willing to take a chance. And it's one of the things I love about American business culture is that willingness to take a risk and take a gamble. Uh, unfortunately, I, I don't see the same culture in business in Ireland. I think uh, maybe there's a little bit more conservatism, but uh, I'll forever be grateful for 
what my mother would call American recklessness, I would say, <laughs> American willingness to uh, to take a gamble on people. And, uh, you know, they, they'll they'll give you a shot in, in the US, I find, in business. And if you can live up to their expectations, then they'll introduce you to their friends. Exactly, yeah. And they have high expectations, so that's the that's the bit back you need to deliver on it. But uh, definitely entrepreneurial mindset is there if you get to the right, the right company. When did you know that Fenergo was a viable business? Yeah, so like I said, we kind of been shopping around the product. So we, you know, we've been pivoting the product. We've been talking to a lot of financial institutions. Uh, it was really when we got that North American product sale. We've done a lot of professional services to fund the company. So there had been other deals, but this is really a proper product deal. Um, and then we kind of, the way we looked at it is, if we can sell to them and if we can hit that benchmark, we can do that anywhere to any financial institution. That was really where we looked at it. Um, up to that point, there was, do we need to pivot again? Or is the timing wrong? There was, there, was, there was questions up to that point that they answered the questions. And we knew this is our niche. We knew this is the area to focus on. We just need to work it in as hard as we possibly could from that point. So yeah, that North American sale was, was probably the biggest proof point that we had and really gave us energy and motivation. One of the things I know that Venergo has done well is, is scaling internationally. Could you tell us a little bit about the journey that you went on? Because you know, I'm aware that you're present in Australia, North America, different parts of Europe. Um, can you tell us a little bit of that story? Yeah, so we um, kind of followed the main financial hubs around the world. So you know, today it would be, as you say, it's like New York, Toronto, London, you know, Paris, Singapore, you know, Australia. Um, I'm sure we're missing a few locations around the way, but the way it works in our sector is clients talk to each other and they copy each other. Um, it's not a competitive advantage what we do for them. It keeps you safe with the regulator and keeps you stopping fines. So the way they look at it is if their neighbor next door they're competing with is using software to keep regulators happy with it, well, then they're like, well, we'll do the same and that'll keep the regulator happy. You know, so they buy in clusters. Um, what we found was in early days, we used the Irish connections as much as possible in the world. We used the AI connections just to get actual introductions into the various locations. Uh, we understood after a while the buying dynamic is that people copied each other. Um, and we used the clients. We sold to one client. We used their connections into other financial institutions. We kind of followed that connections, those peer connections. And they're willing to do it because more people on the platform more viable you are as a company, but also the happier the regulator is, you know, they can't go to two clients to say we're happy and another client say, you know, you're not happy, but that's, you know, it doesn't work like that. Uh, so we definitely leveraged our clients to other financial institutions in the same location. And we found they, they bought in clusters and we found they copy each other. So kind of Australia copies Canada. So we got a great cluster in, in Canada and suddenly we got a great cluster in Australia. We found actually the UK look a lot at Australia and Canada for various connections. So they copied them. So it's funny. Um, Using that peer-to-peer network within those regions and then using that to hop to a new region was kind of how we grew. Uh, the other things kind of learned along the way is you do need presence on the ground. Um, that may have changed a bit, but when you're dealing with senior people, you know, if you're going to a location where you don't have any clients and you're flying in and out, when you actually set up an office, put presence on the ground, they know you're serious and they know that you will be there for the long haul. So having presence on the ground at a certain point does make a difference. And kind of the other thing we realized is, well, a product is global and international, you do need to localize it. The nuances of small features or regulations or just to show that you have really thought deeply about their market and how they're slightly different. Might be 90% common, but there's that 10% difference. And you have to put that, even if some of it's just terminology, you have to put that effort in. So get that kind of localization piece um, is it was important as well as part of it. 
Great. Um, I think you mentioned EI as well. I assume you're referring to Enterprise Ireland, um, which for our listeners is an Irish government agency which helps promote Irish companies abroad. And we have found them to be incredibly supportive and helpful in all sorts of different ways, including helping us access Irish embassies and consulates for hosting events from which we won customers. It's an incredible advantage to be an Irish company when you're trying to compete internationally because you have a, a very pro-business mindset among governments. And uh, also the kind of the Irish network is a real thing. It's a potent thing and people are, are willing to help each other out just on that basis. So once you're up and running. <laughs> So um, I'd love to ask you about uh, how you thought of the architecture of the product at different stages in your evolution, bearing in mind the majority of people that listen to this podcast are software engineers or they work in the tech sector. So people are very curious as to you know, how those considerations change as you go from startup to scale up to well-established enterprise. Yeah, and uh, there's probably um, what clients are willing to accept. You know, so when we started the company, we were one team of software developers, as well as actually myself, myself programming, and then we grew a team, you know. Um, when we started it, there was also that constraint of our clients, the data they have would not put it on the cloud. So we had to develop when it was on-prem, but also develop a small team. So we went first monolith, and I know that's seen as a, as a negative word in some places, but it's actually, if you're a single team and a couple of developers, it's actually highly optimized for a small team to collaborate with each other because everything's one spot and you can do it. It does have its purposes. So it's a valid architecture. When, then as we evolved and grew, we still had the constraint lines wants to be on-prem, but we went to modular monolith. You can't scale multiple teams working in that one monolith. It's not going to work. You're going to have too many clashes. So we went to the modular monolith. And then when clients, we were always pushing them. We did a number of kind of proof points with them that they couldn't run it on the cloud. When they were willing to embrace the cloud, we went all in. It's uh, cloud native. We said, okay, fine. We had the scale as well of people, like you're talking about an engineering department then of 240, 250 people you got to deal with. So we went very much right size slash microservices, event-driven architecture, serverless in terms of just having as efficient as possible uh, for various reasons. But that allowed us to do a number of things. Scalar teams, have teams really decoupled from each other, uh, have clear contracts or interfaces as well as the software. And allowed us to really scale in terms of the multi-clients volume of transactions we were doing at the lowest possible cost, uh, utilizing someone else's lower level tech. So we kind of pivoted away. We went full spectrum really from that initial monolith kind of journey to the modular monolith to the, the full microservices event-driven architecture, decoupled architecture, and our team organization as well. So you do need both. You need the teams and the architecture. I think it's Conway's law, isn't it? But they do mirror each other, and you got to plan them both together step by step. Could I also ask you how you have found your own role evolving over the years? So you've gone from being a development department of one. I'm wondering how close you get to stay to technology as the company continues to scale. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting question because when you talk, so internally, it's slightly easier. People expect your role internally as you scale is to translate the business goals and the business needs into technology context and vice versa. Translate the technology needs of the engineering organization back to business saying we need to do this because it's not always understood. So it's that context and that translation is one of your main goals. Nobody's asking or expecting you to be hands-on developing anymore because you'll be a bottleneck. Like even if, you know, when I do any programming, it's on the site to learn. It's never to, to deliver because so many other things going on. If I was doing that, there's nothing would get delivered. 
and the other part is I internally I'm really close to our customers and it's giving that context, giving the customer lens is one of the big benefits that we can do or trialing an idea out with customers that we're thinking about and kind of sensing does this work or not. And that's okay. Externally, it's slightly different, you know, so when you get to talk to clients, sometimes they will, they're talking to the CTO, so he knows absolutely everything about anything, about every line of code, you know, the product. So it can be a challenge. You do have to stay on top of, uh, you have to stay on top of the technology landscape, uh, which is really interesting. What are your competitors doing, which is really interesting. Uh, but you do have to know a fair amount of detail of what your team is producing. So you have to have a mechanism of constantly being informed. It doesn't mean you have to stand over people. It doesn't mean you have to approve change. That's not what it's about. But you do need to have, when stuff has been developed, informed or lower level. How was it designed? How does it function? And, and typically the way I look at it is, look, we have very clear principles. So, you know, are people aligned to those principles? Are they aligned to an overall higher, higher level architecture? We've all agreed. And then let people operate within that. Very much give them autonomy. If they're within that, then they're probably doing their job correctly and they make great decisions. Um, but having information flow back to you so you can be informed as people develop stuff. Because you do need to represent the front of clients. Um, and then the other part is just to be informed what's going in the industry and what's happening at competitors. And I try and give myself at least a day a month to look at what competitors are doing, look what's going on in the industry, um, and the amount of ideas you can get is pretty powerful. It's, it's all there. It's all available for you to see. You just got to go and actually take the time to look at it. Fantastic. And Niall, I'd love to ask you about fundraising and any advice you might give to budding entrepreneurs about how to conceive of or go about that aspect of entrepreneurship. Yeah, so I'll give it like what we've seen. Try and get money slightly before you need it. The markets are giving it. You probably want to take it in at that point. So there's a timing issue. You kind of raising money just before you absolutely need it, I would say. Um, but for us in our journey, we've had a number. We EI back to the beginning. We were incubated out of um, John Purdy's Ergo company. We were incubated at the beginning. And I will give it kind of the journey from an investor point of view. But every investor we've had gave us a lot more than money. Like everyone along the way. And that, that's probably my number one advice is it's more than money. You, If you've got a great team, great product, you'll have multiple options for the funding, hopefully. But it's got to be more than that. It's not just the money that people are giving there. It's got to be more what they're going to give to the table. So initially, incubated out of John Purdy's Ergo had a huge amount of supporting infrastructure, whether that was HR, whether that was website creation, whether that was helping us with our sales, stuff like that, as well as advice on how to build a tech company. And then kind of the next round, it was Paul Curley's Norcom and a team that he had worked with who had kind of exited Norcom at that point, did incredibly successful. They had the playbook. They were, you know, four or five years ahead of us on their journey or more, slightly more probably. And they mentored us. So a lot more than money they gave us. They gave us mentorship. They gave told us, this is how you run a profitable software business. This is what you really need to be tight on. This is what you need to challenge yourself. And then kind of the phase beyond them was uh, in 2015, a New York private equity partnership insight came along and they would have done probably two main things for us. One, as we went to the tier one large institutions, they gave us the capital we needed in our balance sheet to be credible and their name gave us credibility. So product hadn't changed. We hadn't changed. But people wanted to see the size of the balance sheet and the credibility of who's backing us. They gave us that and allowed us to kind of get through door those financial institutions. And the other thing was they had a playbook that takes a company to $1 billion plus valuation. And they gave us, again, the playbook of taking us from like the $100 million mark to the $1 billion mark. And over a time period of five years, and they did it. Like, you know, that's the journey we went on. They had been on that journey. That's what they do. Um, and our latest investors, uh, again, private equity, Astor, uh, Bridgepoint, uh, 
they take people from the 1 billion to the 3 to 5 billion and that's the you know journey we're on they're, they're showing they're giving us the playbooks so it's a lot more than the money they're giving it's really the support and either the client introductions or the mentorship or as you're growing your staff at the senior level the connections they have to people to bring you in to help you along that journey fantastic um Niall, I'd love to ask you how the people needs of the business may have evolved over the years that you've been running Finergo. Yeah, I mean, um, I think the attitude and culture remains the same. You want somebody who's going to treat it like it's their own business. It's more than just a nine-to-five job that uh, there's no real politics in the company. You know, you want to keep it like that. So I, I would say the kind of fundamental attitude and the core culture of the company, you want to make sure that's consistent. But how has it changed? I think the profile has probably slightly changed. Somebody who wants to work in a startup versus a scale up, you know, and there's there's probably in startup when people come in, they realize that they're on a journey into the unknown, probably. You know, there's probably a high risk element to it. They're asking you for a career path. Probably can't give them that career path. There will be one. It'll be incredibly exciting. You have tons of options, but I probably can't map it out for you because the company is embryonic. You know, we're in that startup mode. Uh, we may pivot multiple times. We may change where our go-to-market is going from geographic location. You know, it's not set in stone. So you got to be able to deal with that uncertainty, I think. And you also got to deal with doing multiple jobs. It's, it's not one defined role. You're probably going to do three or four to five roles as the business needs in that startup mode. I think in scale-up, it is slightly different. We're looking for people who, again, retain the same culture, but they've probably been on the journey that we are and might have been on the next phase of that journey. That's what you want to bring in, and it's that kind of DNA who have done it before, so you're not always inventing it yourself. Um, we would look for people who haven't just been, the last thing you want to do is hire people who've been in large organizations because they've been in large organizations. We're trying to grow to be larger than what we are because I think actually you find there's, you know, there's a lot of dead wood, to be perfectly honest with you, people who want to come in who aren't actually energetic, who just used to having armies of people and this is, you know, a very steady kind of structure they run. And that's kind of, we're like, well, that's not really us where we're going to grow and evolve. Um, but I think they've been through that scale-up phase, ideally been in technology company, you know, in the SaaS company and have seen what works and what doesn't work. So I think it's that. And the other part is probably geographically dispersed, you know, as your needs change, you do realize that having, as I said before, key people in the market reduces your time to market in certain locations. So that geographic kind of base element comes in as we scale up. Yeah, it's very interesting. As you were speaking, I was kind of just writing down. It's almost like generalist versus specialist. Like when you're in that startup phase, you want people who are, you know, happy to do the super important call with a potential new customer, but also go and buy the coffee and the milk. And, you know, once you've gone over 50 or 100 in headcount, you know, you generally will have people whose responsibility is, you know, either do that enterprise sales call or make sure that there's coffee in the office. I take your point as well about when you're in the startup phase, you definitely can't give someone a kind of tangible career roadmap for how they're going to evolve with the business over the next three years because you just don't know what direction you're going to be in or what the dimensions of the company will be in a few years. But I think you can confidently say when you are in the startup phase that it's certainly not going to be boring. It's going to be very exciting and it's going to be as interesting as you make it. And that for me is why I've had the experience of working in Fortune 500 companies. I've worked in a couple of startups and now probably you'd say Zartis is probably in the kind of scale-up phase. And if you're someone that wants to be challenged and stretched out and to have an exciting work life, I think the startup scale-up world is much more exciting, invigorating, engaging. It gives you all these opportunities are open in front of you if you're someone who likes to take responsibility and someone that's interested in their own professional growth. Exactly. And you make decisions. You get to make your own decisions and is attractive to a lot of people. 
Yeah, if you've got a little bit of control freakery in you, it's the, it's the right environment to be in. Um, how do you stay interested after 15 years in Finergo? Do you know, it, it feels like, well, it's a single role. It's, it's not like, it feels like a different role every six months. I think when you're scaling and growing and every business is, you know, challenges thrown at us, whether it's COVID, whether it's, you know, credit crunches, et cetera, you're constantly being thrown curveballs and you have to adapt. Um, and you have the ability to adapt because we're a very agile organization. Um, we can make decisions pretty fast. That to me is why it's interesting. It is a different role every six months. And, you know, you look back through your career, it's, a, you know, I think when I started, it's kind of like, I felt I knew more than what I actually did know. And now I realize I actually know I have so much less than what I actually do know. Like there's so much to learn. you kind of naivety at the beginning. I love to learn. I love new challenges. And if I'm not learning or being challenged, I find it really demotivating. So that is probably part of it. I do a lot of field facing, client facing, and I see the impact of what we do, good and bad. You get the feedback both ways, and that is motivating. You want it to be as positive as possible. You want the customers to be happy. You want to see them benefiting from what you're doing. Um, having that field facing revenue generating part of the business really helps. And it's just, as I said, when you're scaling up, you're giving opportunities to people and seeing them grow, and that's incredibly motivating. And you're also getting to do stuff you may have done before, but they do it better than you because they can focus on it and they can be specialized while you're just trying to be this generalist, trying to do many things at once. I think just seeing other people grow and kind of empowering them is also, it's incredibly, it's incredibly motivating. And you end up learning tons from them. That's another, another way to learn. And that's, I find that that's great. What about advice you might give to your younger self, knowing what you know now? You touched on something interesting earlier with, uh, you know, there's a kind of the arrogance that you think you know so much coming out of university about the world or about business or technology, whatever it might be. But after, you know, X amount of years of, of career history behind you, you certainly have picked up a thing or two. Is there any advice you'd give your younger self? I think um, it was probably, especially when you're, when you're trying to build a business from scratch, I guess, or build apartments from scratch is, uh, like, don't feel like you have to know every single thing. You know, there was a certain point in my career, especially when I first became, let's say, a team leader or whatever, I kind of felt if I didn't know more than everybody on their team and their roles, well, how could I be their leader? You know, you can't scale that way. You can't, you can only go so far with trying to be the person that knows the most and you really start diminishing people after a while if you uh, take that way. So I would say is look at yourself like kind of a T where what are the areas you do want to be deep in and specialist, but what are ones that you're more kind of general knowledge, higher level knowledge, giving people business context, but not trying to tell them how to do their job. You've got to get that balance right rather than trying to be deep knowledge and everything because uh, it'll just burn you out eventually. I would say certainly I, I was kind of very conscious trying to learn everything and understand everything and you just can't scale with that approach. I would say part of that is probably understanding yourself, kind of understanding your personality type, understanding other people's personality types, understand why you do certain a certain way and why people do things another way and why you drive them mad and they drive you mad, you know, but you got to understand the motivations behind it. Not everybody is the same as yourself. I would say that helps a lot. And then don't be afraid to say you don't know. Like, honestly, it's one of the most powerful, liberating thing you can do in your mean, You're most of the senior person. You're like, well, I have no clue. Does anybody else understand this? Or does anybody else understand, can explain this? Because a lot of times, if you don't know half the other people in the meeting, don't know either what's actually been discussed. So not to be afraid to say, I don't know. And, and, and you know, I wouldn't be worried about looking like a fool or anything, like saying that it's at this stage, I'm very, very comfortable. <laughs> it's better than being a fool talking about something you don't really know what you're talking about. That looks a lot worse. And probably the last thing is like, you learn so much from peer networks, like getting that peer network. You know, that's probably the most powerful thing, I think. 
and you find everybody has the same problems, but other people have spent months thinking about it, solved it, you leverage what they've done. You learn so much from that peer network that you're trying to, trying to do it yourself on your own. Fantastic. Well, I've got one more question for you before we wrap up, Niall, which is, are there any books, podcasts, or other sources of learning you could recommend to us? Um, yeah, there's tons. <laughs> tons, but I'd say the probably the ones that I found most impactful, um, probably well known. The Hard Things About Hard Things, Ben Horowitz is a good business management scale up book I found really interesting and it kind of relate to a lot of things in it. Um, I would naturally be a great presenter. I found the book Talk Like Ted was excellent. You really read and think about it. And I must admit, there isn't a presentation that goes by and I'm thinking, really, they really could read that book. You know, they're here not to lecture, they're here to impart key concepts and explain you know people get that two things mixed up you're not trying to give a bunch of slides that people will go home and study and have an exam later on you're trying to give key information and describe it so talk like ted is really good um from a tech engineering might be slightly dated but it still is all valid all the gene kin books and like uh, the phoenix projects beyond the phoenix project accelerate devops handbook the whole cohort of books is they're brilliant they're you know and they're the key principles really of running engineering can't wait for the next generation equivalent of them because I've got to wonder what is that kind of 2013, 2014-ish kind of started as far as I remember. And probably podcasts, obviously this podcast, <laughs> I find uh, InfoQ is really good. I like a bit of fun. Business Wars is a bit of fun. It's not tech, but it's a bit of fun. I do enjoy that. And there's an Irish company, News Over Audio. Uh, NOAA is really good for just articles across major publications that they've put I run a lot, so I get most of my learning from listening, and it's a great way to kind of get you articles that I just wouldn't have time to read. So I really enjoy that one. Very efficient way to approach things like taking care of your physical health and learning at the same time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I wouldn't read if it wasn't for audio. <laughs> I just wouldn't have the time. Fantastic. Now, thank you so much for your time today. It's been great to have you. Brilliant. I appreciate it. Pleasure. Thank you. We had production by Adnan Tuchar with support from Albina Cresteva and Evan Sheehan, and we'll catch you next time on the Story of Software podcast.